You are listening to On Resistance Radio, agitating the airwaves on KPFK 90.7. We are a horizontal media collective determined to empower revolt. You can find all our past broadcasts on SoundCloud, www.soundcloud.com slash on-resistance. We have an upcoming event on Friday, April 3rd at Greenway Court Theater, 544 North Fairfax Avenue. Please check our Facebook page for details. Today's show will start with a news report followed by a discussion on power and naming trends of violent extremism, as both defined and practiced by the ruling class, in this case, the U.S. regime of America. Hello, and I'm Bobby. If you search for the Violent Extremism Summit on Google, the first page of results are all government websites and government-favorable propaganda machines such as New York Times and CNN. The first result that pops up is a White House fact sheet, which reads like a PR-instructed effort to preempt any backlash that a fascistic conference of its type would permit. But unfortunately, there was no backlash, and the international summit, which combined state entities with the private sector, flew alarmingly under the radar. On February 17th, the White House hosted a three-day summit on violent extremism both domestically and abroad. It also included a focus on social media and Internet usage. Tech giants such as Facebook, Twitter, and Google were all in attendance. With the new White House Cybersecurity Department and a Senate-authored bill CISA in place, many fear that violent extremism will just be another umbrella term to justify whatever violent acts the state wants to enforce, just like enemy combatant, terrorist, or criminal has been used before. Last year, the mainstream news covered how violence and displacement from areas in South and Central America caused mass influxes and migration to areas in the United States. They did not cover how most of this violence and displacement is caused and affected by globalized capitalism, U.S. policy, and and the international drug war, of which the United States is a key player. Because of racism and white supremacy established through colonization, many of these migrant refugees seeking refuge and asylum were kept in prison indefinitely pending deportation, or if released, were met with threats of violence because of their legal status. Most were not allowed legal representation or guaranteed safety while in federal custody, as the situation in Marietta demonstrated last July, where violent white extremists blocked a bus of migrant families without interference from local police who themselves demonstrated anti-migrant beliefs. Images were leaked in May of 2014 showing young children and families, mostly women and child refugees, detained and housed in prison facilities. Immediately after, the state began flying refugees to San Diego to be processed in nearby areas like Marietta, California. Marietta representatives incited a backlash against the migrants, drawing out conservative white supremacist and neo-Nazi elements from surrounding areas that took action to blockade and redirect buses of detained migrants, causing considerable fear and added trauma. While Marietta was not a safe area to release the refugees in a hostile racist public with no public transportation, the action taken by white right extremists was effective in delaying processing and release of detained migrant families across the board. In a display of fascism, this racist backlash disproportionately blames poor displaced houseless migrant people of color for the labor and resource policies of the American regime. Even as recently as this month, there still remain thousands of indefinitely detained children and families living in cramped state facilities for the last six or more months imprisoned in the U.S. Organizations like ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, denying mothers with children from being able to cash bond out, blocking their release as a form of punishment for seeking refugee status. Rogue agencies with agents who, in El Monte last year, stalked and pulled a gun on a local pro-migrant activist. 
Considering the border wars waged against displaced peoples and the universality of state violence, migrants and refugees are some of the most vulnerable populations worldwide. While the left and immigrant rights coalitions generally have continued to lobby for policy reform and have even offered to directly support the migrant refugees themselves, it is important to take note of whose lobbying or direct action has an audience and gains an effective immediate result. In this case, the agenda of the federal government seems to be against acknowledging or granting asylum to refugees affected by U.S. imperialism, while also tolerating and taking demands from violent anti-migrant white supremacist reactionary movements. We will be joined by our fellow OR participant X after break to further discuss this question of violent extremism. Thanks for checking back in. You're listening to On Resistance Radio. We just finished our news report. We're going to get right back into the discussion on violent extremism, considering the state uses that phrase a lot to invisibilize their violence. How does the state use violent extremism? Whose violence is of a concern to the United States government? And how is that violence defined? Welcome back, X and Bobby. I think to really determine what violence is or when violence is used and what is appropriate, the very thing, the very entity and or concept or apparatus that has legitimacy or and monopolizes that legitimacy over violence is the state. Since they they own that, since they the state is the only apparatus that can issue and sanction its own violence. It's really hard to combat hegemonically. I know we talk a lot about hegemonic power and how much hegemonic power the state actually has over people if they really truly believe that they can't and they're not allowed to impose any sort of violence upon it without being met with, I guess, legitimate brutality. That's something that we have to break through as people who are trying to delegitimize the state, essentially, is we have to break through to everyone that it shouldn't own own the right for you to defend yourself against it if it imposes violence on you. Violence is defined by the state, by the media, by white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. Basically, every systematic institution with power, I think that the state is threatened by anything that wants to threaten its power. So resistant groups, the black community, being black in this country, every act that we do where we're not in chains or we're not in jail or we're not doing what we're told, to them they must see it as an act of violence because we're resisting against the violence that they actually inflict on us. So who gets to define violence is the one with the power, which hopefully, like, kind of what X said, we have to change. People are quick to call property destruction violence. People are quick to call people taking the street violence or basically not listening to authority violence. But really, the violence is the fact that we have to go in the streets to 
protest against another life being taken. When I hear people within the power structure using terms like violent extremism or violence, what I hear is usually a lot of fear-mongering because it's hard to believe that those people in those positions that represent, literally represent this power structure that has a monopoly and the right to exert a hierarchy of violence in terms of which violence is accepted. You can't really take seriously when they're trying to speak seriously on the topic of violent extremism when just by speaking on it, they're invisibilizing their own use of violence to maintain the power structure that elected them, that pays them, that constantly has people affirming their authority and affirming that violence through fear of violence. So I think the state kind of really manipulates people's fear of violence while being the most supreme violent institution that actually exists. And so when that institution that is supremely violent talks about violent extremism, especially an institution like the United States government, which is founded on colonization, then it makes me wonder like whose violence they're erasing, which is the white supremacist system that established this area. And when they use terms like violent extremism, it's, I think, fear-mongering about any type of response from non-white peoples who might take actions to defend themselves in other countries or here domestically, because I just never hear terms like that ever used to actually name white supremacist or heteropatriarchal violence when it's actually happening. It's always used to demonize uh, non-white people's resistance or response. I guess to further regarding the United States government, the United States government wants to want so much control for it, I feel, that um, it's willing to it's willing to, yeah, demonize and criminalize anything that might disrupt its its power, its order, its power over it and social control that it has over the people. When I think about the rise in police brutality, or maybe not even the incline, maybe it's more of just uh, more people knowing about it now due to social media and because everyone has cameras. I feel like what people aren't really questioning in these anti-police brutality movements is, yeah, the very concept of police brutality itself. It's like the police are inherently brutal you know, they need brutality in order to organize. This is how the state organizes. It organizes by way of violence or threat of violence, and that coerces and compels people to participate in, in certain, following certain laws. You know, if you break a law consciously or unconsciously, you are met with that state-sanctioned violence. So, yeah, how do we break through to people in regard to the violence of the state is is yeah like you were saying the the ultimate the ultimate violence you know i think people live in this kind of detached kind of liberal world that places the violence of the state at a at a distance and doesn't see that it is pretty much the thing that is dictating our everyday lives you know, people talk about revolution. Oh, revolution happens. Like, little children are going to die. Well, it's like little children already are dying. You know, little kids are already being killed by the police. Like, young black men and women and trans people are being killed consistently due to this violent extremism of police state terrorism. And there's also just the violence of capitalism itself and just, like, you know, the violence against our food and our planet. Um, and, you know, I was just reading 
I've read like two articles this week about how, you know, cheap wine has arsenic in it or cheap tea has like high levels in fluoride, which are poisonous in it. And it's always the food that is affordable to poor people. So there is this constant violent act of economic oppression that affects people every day. You know, the violence that is going on by these companies polluting our air or the violent acts of the sort of like mental breakdown that you have to go through to try to assimilate into this like society. And that violence is never even really talked about. It's like the word extreme. It's extreme that we have so many systems of hierarchy that work to keep people from being able to determine their own life, to be able to even plant a garden or like the ground is already poisoned through decades of misuse and management by industrial warfare. And even if we have space and we qualify for space via rent, we act like people who are reacting to the conditions that exist are violent when the conditions that actually exist are causing violence and are actually enforcing violence on people. And then also in terms of any kind of conflict that exists is violent and we live within a conflict. And to acknowledge that violence, you finally can start to prepare for what engaging that conflict would look like. And, you know, I don't think when I had previous understandings of what violence was, I was against violence. But now when I come to understand violence as who has control to be violent without having any consequences for that violence and then who is punished for responding to that violence. And I think we have a misuse of the term nonviolence and a misuse of the term like pacifism because pacifism isn't really nonviolent. Violence still exists. Um, nonviolence isn't really not violent. It actually is a way of navigating violence and tolerating violence to demonstrate that you're deserving of not experiencing that violence. And actually, most nonviolent movements have actually invited the state in to come mediate some sort of struggle. So it's reaching out to a higher authority of violence to intervene with the National Guard, for example, which has a monopoly on violence to come into an area and to mediate a conflict. I guess I wanted to touch up on the culture that we're living in under, you know, colonial rule, how a lot of us moving around in spaces in our bodies don't have agency over our own bodies or certain people often feel self-entitled to either commodify or objectify our bodies. And I think about the lived experience of gender violence. And I also feel like the gender violence that is imposed on a lot of femme and or women's bodies is something that, I mean, it's not it's not really seen as this like extreme violence. It should be because it is something that it causes post-traumatic stress. It causes a lot of people to have to really rethink of like how they look and how they act in order to survive um, and deal with this violence. And I find it relative to even environmental racism, um, when I think about when I think about the commodification of anything that can reproduce, I think about the commodification of femininity in general because people who can give birth are their bodies are commodified for the sake of capital because that is what produces the workforce. And then I think of the commodification and colonization of land itself and owning that reproduction and how that is used to continuously commodify and just the the very 
naming and, and attaching some sort of value to spaces or bodies is a violence. It's backed up by so much, quote unquote, social cultural conditioning, the culture of uh, colonization. And just in regard to what you were talking about, Jay Ray, when people who are supposedly supposed to be on our side and they actually bring in the police and they actually will kind of collude with with the state to meet their own needs or when people are attacked like what happened in Marietta when we talk about hegemonic power that's what we're talking about is this belief in a voted on or an assigned quote-unquote legitimate authority that has the power to basically impose that violence and like legitimize that I feel like that is the very thing that we're trying to to break from that kind of collective unconscious uh, belief in the state apparatus so the belief that black people are inherently criminal or the belief that all police impose violence uh, unnecessary violence um, so just yeah challenging that that framework of socialization that is um, imposed on us by the state from from when we're very young and when we're having to engage with all of these institutions to the day we die, we're always told by these institutions that to trust, you know, the state, trust your voted on uh, politicians, and meanwhile, they're exploiting our bodies. So what does it mean when a country that routinely incites anti-black, anti-Arab racist sentiment as a justification for violence, war, invasion, infiltration, and drone attacks hosts a summit against violent extremism? Like, what does that mean when the state, the government, the perpetrator of violence that actually ignores all the interpersonal and systematic violence that it affects against people appears to host this violent extremism summit and invites all the other states that also probably exert a monopoly of violence against Um, their people? It means they're organizing against us. And it means that they're starting to unite their power and focus on you know, what is the global resistance. They looked highly at social media because social media is so important to connecting people or spreading awareness or just kind of informing people or what's happening. It's pretty much like has taken to be the media tool for the resistance. So if you can control how people are able to share, you know, these videos of a cop beating and killing a black person you're able to stop that from even being able to get uploaded on YouTube even more shared and gone viral on social media then you can keep the story out of the news which makes me kind of think when can we call it fascism this is fascism that what that summit was was the fascist summit and this sort of denial that people want to have about the fact that we're living under fascism I think is because there's this fear of if you really recognize the state's violence, right, and you really kind of see what is happening, then you start to see your non-acting on it as violence as well. Um, You begin to see the fact that you're kind of just allowing for the cops to go and continue doing what they're doing and or that you don't say anything when you see someone on the metro harass a trans woman 
or you don't do anything when you see that person, you know, kick and call homeless person a word, you begin to see that you also are a fascist and you also are violent. And your violence, that silence allows for that violence to continue. So I think we should take that summit as a cue that we need to also be organizing and that they're going to start to restrict social media. So we can't rely on that too much. So what are we going to do when they start to make that even less accessible than what it is? I think, yeah, that's, I think they are organizing. I think they've, they've seen and studied a lot of movements that have happened in the past few years um, since probably 99 um, Battle of Seattle, uh, NATO, you know, they do some, um, you know, come to these summits. And yeah, I feel like they've always been organizing against us, but this time involving other different states um, to particularly talk about uh, radical movements and social media there yeah I feel like there is there's planning that is needed for them in regard to um, global uprisings because you know global uprising or uprising happens in America and yeah people are are definitely going to know about it and I feel like this part of why I've seen so much co-optation of resistance culture in the media. You know, you see shows on and commercials on Revolt and it just really, really packages it up really neatly. And I feel like that does its job of of selling and romanticizing and detaches us from a reality instead of actually really fundamentally wanting to be part of that uprising. People are just wanting to take pictures of themselves where there's like cops in the background or just feeding into that there's more things that are um socializing us into not caring um apathy sociopathy yeah like bobby was saying we just gotta get we just gotta get gotta get a lot more tighter and serious about what we want to how we want to respond to actions like these secret summits of nations coming together to squash our movements essentially because there's a lot of us we were saying before that there's just way too many people who are who are in the know now and social media does have so much to do with that pervasive and decentralization of that knowledge you know the black our black ancestors artists black feminists from the 60s 70s they're helping us, you know, taking part of that struggle, teaching us how we can negate and oppose these representations that the media tells us who we are, that we're subordinated, but readying readying ourselves. When I found out that there was a, I mean, it is a fascism summit. It's basically a bunch of countries coming together under the guise of anti-terrorism, when we know that they are the ones that are weaponized and funded and they have concentrated forms of capital and violence. And they're saying that it's about combating violent extremism. But then there's like this weird kind of like fine print where it's like we're trying to prevent youth radicalization. And they're saying they're trying to prevent recruitment to quote unquote terrorist groups. But from a resistance perspective, it's really dangerous when the state starts to use that rhetoric because they sweep up everyone. And they use the 
you know, the well-meaning people who will use resistance and liberation as kind of branding tools to achieve some sort of policy change. And they will fearmonger those groups to go out and to seek out radicals and to snitch on radicals to the state so that the state can actually become effective or more effective. They're already effective in tracking and co-opting these movements. Like Bobby said, when you actually name it fascism, I think it's like very clear that it can't be reformed. You can't just get a representative in there or vote your way away from fascism. Fascism is genocidal. It will kill everybody in its path, anybody that threatens it, and it is already killing people. It's not just that we have overtly violent actors or agents like the police or the government or these social media corporate fascist conspirators against the people. When you realize that and you realize it's a threat to even talk about it, to talk about violent extremism in a critical way, is something that we had to think about going forward, organizing ourselves against a fascist state that has a monopoly on power in a world where fascism only thrives if people implicitly support it or tolerate it or don't fight against it. And that's it for our show. Thank you for listening to On Resistance Radio. Please visit our SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash on dash resistance. You can check us out on Twitter at onresistancela. You can also visit our Tumblr on resistanceradio.tumblr.com. Don't forget that we have an upcoming event Friday, April 3rd at Greenway Court Theater, 544 North Fairfax Avenue. Please check out our Facebook page for more details. Uh, and, time in, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, I remember from, from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone w- we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con- complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, f- my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of, uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up, uh, Carol, I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asks me about violence, uh, uh, I just uh, 
I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Mm -hmm. 